Second Samuel this evening, in chapter 12. <clears throat> there is enough doctrine in this chapter that we'll have to take it in two parts because it would not be good to rush through it. <clears throat> so we'll take the four, first 14 verses this evening. It's about a year. A year has passed almost, or about, between chapters 11 and 12. We read at the end of chapter 11, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband, and when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And then we read, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. They are married. They have had a child. They appear to be going on as though nothing happened on the outside. But we know David is haunted by what he has done. He has not dismissed it. It is working hard against him, and it is God letting it happen. He's let this year go by so this could work in that man's heart. And we know this, or at least some of what is going on, because for sure, Psalm 51, right, David writes about what he was going through. And also Psalm 32, which is believed to have been written about this very event in his life. Now, at the time we get to these events in chapter 12, he's not yet written either of those psalms, Psalm 51 or 32. But we can look at those psalms and say, well, we know what he was going through when Nathan showed up. We read, for example, in Psalm 32, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groanings all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah, the music would play to think about what he just said. And so there it was, God's hand was on him. But yet nothing was made public, not a peep from any man of God or anyone in the palace about what had taken place. Now we look at verse 1. Then Yahweh sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and one poor. Now, this parable will have to interrupt as we go through it, but Nathan knew that directly confronting David would bring about results that were not ideal. The purpose was not just to expose David. The purpose was to restore him, to rebuild him. But first, he was going to have to do him in, hit him really hard. As I read this story, I am convinced that Nathan wanted David to repent and be restored in spite of this horrible sin. It, it would have been worse for the nation. You have to draw this conclusion because of how God handles this. It would have been worse for the nation to kill David and leave them where they were, as in the days of Saul. But... Again, if the prophet outright charged David, he would have become likely defensive, maybe even hostile. And so 
It is the genius of the prophet. God has given him the message, and it appears that it's up to Nathan to figure out how to deliver it. Just because God sent him to address the king did not guarantee that he would have success and could be careless at the same time, or abrasive. Nathan is an honorable man in this chapter. He is the guy. So the prophet, he looked to make things better. He wasn't looking to just make it a crime scene. He wanted healing. David's sin had to be exposed without, without denying the crime. Not enough to just expose the sin. There had to be confession and repentance also as far as Nathan was concerned because that was God's concern. And so God was breaking David's heart before Nathan shows up, but he's not finished. He's, he's going to... Uh, wrap it up, we would say, uh, as when the prophet is by the time the prophet is done, and it will be a heavy price. And this parable is going to prepare David to feel the stinging rebuke, and it is going to be brutal. If you put yourself in David's place, you say, "Oh gosh, I would never want to be the recipient." Of such words, and I'll, when I get to that, you'll see it, I hope, if you don't see it already. Was God dealing with Bathsheba? Of course he was, but David was the primary. He was the real problem. Again, I think she was young and she was seduced. That doesn't relieve her of guilt, but David was, um, he was the bad guy, the baddest of the bad guys. And so here he had a year to repent. He doesn't take it. And um, we read, the Lord sent Nathan to David. You want to ask, David, do you still feel the delight of the law at this point in your life? Do you still meditate in it day and night? You know, Psalm 1. Well, if he certainly did not. But he knew the greatness of the law, but he wasn't happy about it because of his sin. There was separation between him and God, but he will get it back. We, we know that. But here, uh, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Well, David sent messengers to Bathsheba, and he sent messengers to Joab. And you read that God is now sending his messenger to David. Uh, Nathan, the man that had to take back his blessing on David's building of the temple. A very special prophet. It's hard to be wrong. As you're a man of God, people are expecting you to be right. Sometimes they want you to say something profound when you've got nothing. And so Nathan, you know, to go back and say, David, I have to take that back. It certainly wasn't pleasant, but it speaks highly of the man and his character. I don't know if Nathan knew about the sin. I don't think he did. I think the staff covered it up well enough. Joab wasn't going to tell anybody. He was that kind of a guy, a man of few words and many knives. But he knows now, Nathan does, whether he did or not. If, if he did not know and God reveals it to him, then that is, of course, giving him that divine discernment, that the gift of knowledge is the gift of knowing something that you could not have known unless God told you. The gift of knowledge is not someone who steps into the pulpit and knows about the Bible. That's teaching. That comes from hard work and study. Knowledge is when you know something is wrong because God has told you, and you otherwise would not have known it. 
And maybe that is the case with Nathan. God has told him. Well, either way, he's showing up and he's going to exercise two forms of prophecy. Direct prophecy, you're the man, David. And predictive prophecy, this is what's going to happen. And so we see this gift of prophecy in in that uh, sphere working through this prophet. And confronting the guilty is very unpleasant. Uh, especially one that's a, a, a murderer, as, as David, and king. We never know how they're going to react when we confront somebody who's guilty. Will they turn on you, or will they yield? Will they confess what is right and make restitution? Or will they defend their wrong with some subtle excuse, or maybe an outright way, way of just denying it? I think of King Asa. The prophet went to King Asa and spoke words of warning to him, and he received them. The prophet went again a second time and spoke words to King Asa, and King Asa rebuked him. And the same thing with King Amaziah. The prophet went and spoke. The king submitted. I wish we had time to get into these things. Uh, The second time the prophet spoke, the king said, Who made you a counselor? You better shut your mouth before something happens to you. You can read about that in 2 Chronicles 15 and 2 Chronicles 25. My point is, just because someone receives a rebuke once doesn't mean they're going to receive it again. People get tired of being corrected for their wrong. And uh, you would think that believers would say, sorry that I had to put you through that, Pastor. But they, they often don't. And it, uh, this is what Nathan is confronted with. I'm sure he was not um, you know, happy and gay about the whole thing. And I use the word gay in its true form, not its corrupted form. And he came to him and said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. Now, parables were a favorite form of address in that culture at that time, especially when there was an unwelcome truth to be considered. The atrocity of David's sin far exceeded the crimes in the parable. So as Nathan is given the parable, giving the parable, Nathan is saying, man, what you've done, David, is far worse than eating somebody's lamb. You murdered somebody. The rich man represents David, the poor man Uriah, the Elam Bathsheba, and the traveler represents the urge passing through the flesh that has been put before the eyes. Whether it is from hell or the flesh, it doesn't make a difference. It's bad. Verse 2, the rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds. Now that, again, parallels David and his harem. Verse 3, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, And it was like a daughter to him. I I think it's gross letting an animal eat out of your cup or off your plate. Some of you might, you know, you know, let the dog lick you in the mouth and ah. So every time I read that, it's like, oh, come on, you have to put that part in. But anyway, of course, he's he's painting a picture, and David is listening to all of this. He is the judge. This is the Supreme Court, and he's bringing this case before the, the judge. To make a decision. That's how David is is thinking it. Of course, Nathan knows what he's going to do with this. And there was Uriah, loving and providing and protecting for Bathsheba as best he could. He 
He says here it was like a daughter to him. And what he is saying is the love was deeper than mere romance. As we transfer the parable from the character with the ewe lamb to Uriah, he loved Bathsheba. And it wasn't just, you know, a casual relationship. This was deep. It was genuine, without care or expectation of anything in return. And this is going to help when it hits, when... when Nathan puts the, pro, the, the parable together. All of this is going to come crashing down on David in an instant. Because emotionally, he's now connected to this story. Verse four, 4. And a traveler came to the rich man, who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So that traveler is the lust of David, the wayfaring man, the man who had come to him. And in the parable, Nathan says that the man refused to satisfy his urges with his harem. In this case of David, he goes ahead and takes another's. And, uh, of course, it's... uh, We know the story from chapter 11. This traveler is, I think, also mentioned for us in Job chapter 1. And you'll know the verse when I read it. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered Yahweh and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. See, he's a traveler. He's a wayfarer. He is one that comes to you. And there, Satan, he looks, he's on the prowl. Well, God does too. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro on behalf of the righteous, that he may show himself strong. So it's not like we're we're without assistance. And that's where the struggle is. So coming to visit the one who was not where he was supposed to be. Remember, David was supposed, when the crime was committed, he was supposed to be on the battlefield. But he opted to stay home in his palace. And that's when the traveler came to him. Ezekiel, he makes this interesting statement about Sodom and Gomorrah, which is uh, outlines for us the pattern of uh, idle hands being tools of the devil. He talks about Sodom. He says, this is their problem. Ezekiel 16, verse 49, he says, Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. She was selfish, she was greedy, she was full of pride, but she had an abundance of idleness. I think in this country, there's a lot of idleness that's allowing all of these special wacko advocates to run loose and and, and everywhere. They're just, they've infested the corporations, the government. I don't want to go political. You, you don't need me to do that. There are enough other people out there. You come to church to hear God's word. But let it be said, there are uh, the, these sodomites out there doing the same thing. And I don't mean that to insult. I'm just calling it like it is. And if it's an insult for being guilty of what's true, that's the problem. That, then change teams. Anyway, this sinful urge... From this needy traveler stopping by, compelling attention and action. 
is what James talked about. And this is tough stuff because, you know, the flesh has got such an advantage over us. We're born in iniquity, as David wrote in one of the uh, Psalm 31, I believe it was. I was born in iniquity. My mother brought me forth. I was born a sinner. I was born with a disadvantage. James 1, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And he's probably thinking about David or, or maybe Cain. There are enough characters in the Old Testament for James to be mindful of. And then he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Here in verse 4, it continues to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd. And uh, it is now, he, he committed a crime to feed the tra- traveler, is what he is save, saying. David had eight wives at the time this was committed, and concubines. Uh, so that's how much we know before Bathsheba. As David is listening, he's infuriated by this. And Nathan pours it on thick, on purpose, it, because it, that's what it requires. This was a big deal. How do you get this king to confess, to, to repent, and get right with God in the eyes of so many witnesses? Which Nathan's going to bring that up. He's going to say, a lot of people are watching this, David. You've given occasion for the enemies of God to blaspheme. And he says to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb, prepared it for the man who had come to him. So he's, to satisfy his lust, he stole, he killed, he lied, he used others. And now he's entering into yet another crime as he's listening to this story, and it is the crime of hypocrisy. Remember Joseph. We remember Joseph. I don't care what sin you struggle with. Joseph ran from the sin. Uh, sin can run pretty fast, too. Uh, so, I mean, I wish you could, uh, you know, you could just shoot it and kill it and that be the end of it. It just doesn't work that way. And God says, remember that, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. And that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing Galatians 6, 1 in action. And Paul's telling the Galatians, <clears throat> while you're taking in this law over grace that I brought to you, Remember, you who are spiritual, restore such a one, lest you be overcome. I'll get to that verse again. Verse 5 now. So David, so David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As Yahweh lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. There's the hypocrisy. Because David is guilty. And he wants this judgment extracted on the man that stole a sheep and killed it. But what about the man that stole a woman and killed the husband for her? The very thing that Nathan wanted to do was to awaken that noble man in David. And he does it. This does it. This is the noble righteousness rising up in David. This is waking him up out of his stupor. But it takes a lot, does it not? We like to see God just do a miracle and part the sea. Sometimes God says, I'll part the sea, but you're going to have to use a bucket. And it's, that might be a bit hyperbole there, but my point is, sometimes for God to do the miraculous, he uses us to be involved, and it's hard work. 
And uh, we, we don't expect that. We, we think that miracles should sort of just be served. And this is not the biblical example. The cross was a miracle. It cost blood, death. And the old Christian saying, we cannot expect Jesus to do all the dying. We have to die to self ourselves. So Nathan's parable, it hit its mark. It causes David to unknowingly pronounce judgment on himself. But would he own it? Would he own the guilt? We see folks sometimes confess or admit, yeah, I did it wrong, but they don't own it. They end up, you know, they'll leave the church or they'll they'll defend their wrong or something like that, but they won't own it. And that makes Reconstruction grace very difficult. I must add, though, it's very hard to be flayed like this. But sometimes it is necessary. And he said to Nathan, As Yahweh lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. Doesn't sin look so much more ugly in somebody else than it does when we do it? When we see somebody else speeding, I don't know about you, um, when we see someone, I hope he gets caught. (laughs) When it's us, oh no, I do not want the blues, those blue lights that uh, show up. And it is not until our conscience is awakened do we begin to sympathize. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. So David moves from one who coveted to one who became an adulterer, a thief, a liar, a murderer. And here again is the hypocrisy. He just tramples the law of God. He's not trying to. He did not wake up one morning and say, today I'm going to trample God's word. It snuck up on him. According to Exodus 22, the penalty for stealing and slaughtering another man's animal was fourfold restitution, not murder. So David goes a bit over the top because, again, he's emotionally put into this. He see, all he can see, you know, David's a champion of the, of the underdog at heart. He is a good, righteous man who got tripped up. And God does not dispose of him because of it. He does not say, you know, you were a good, righteous man. I gave so much to you and you blew it. Now you're going to hell. He does not do that. Nothing even close to that. The difficulty with preaching such things is that the guilty then tend to just remember that part of the story without the confession, the repentance, and the judgment. And there is judgment coming. David's not going to get a smack on the wrist for this. He is going to pay a heavy price. And not only him, others are going to pay. And then he's going to mess up again later on in his ministry, big time. Um, Such great lessons abound from what we know as the Bible. Well, uh, he, David, of course, he does worse than this character. He commits adultery and murder which did require death. So that's the irony. He's calling for murder for a guy who needs to restore fourfold when he is the murderer who cannot pay. You cannot, according to the law, buy your way out of murder. You cannot say, well, you know what? I'll bring 10 oxen and just be right with God. There was just no, no way to, you had, it, was, it was death by stoning in most cases. And so this parable of, Nathan is a work of genius, uh, logic. The logic behind it is, is powerful. The rich man not only took the poor man's ewe lamb 
but he killed a poor man in reality. And that's what he's going to hit him with. Now, the preacher cannot overdo his points so that the condemnation is devastating, leaving nothing to repent. Uh, you know, we don't want to do that. It's a, a tricky business. Again, the best you can do is make appeals from the word. You, you present the law, you present the judgment, the consequences, and the grace, and you hope that the individual will sort it out before the Lord. Uh, church discipline is one of the most stomach-turning events to have to sit down with somebody and say, listen, this is how we do, do it, or this is how the Bible does it, and this is how you did it, and it, we got a problem. No pastor skips to such a meeting. Uh, and, um, but it's, it's real. There's a real devil there is the point. There's a real flesh there, a real sinful flesh, and it's, uh, it's, it's, not, it's not easy work. And you know the Bible says you got a problem with somebody, then go to them. Oh, great. I don't want to go to them. I want the pastor to go to them for me. But the Bible says, no, you go to them first. And if you still have a problem, then you come to the brethren. And uh, if the person doesn't repent and they've been proven wrong, then the church has to exercise discipline. And uh, hopefully there's a plan of restoration if the recipient will receive it. If David said, too bad, Nathan, I did it, I'm the king. You know how many psalms I've written? Uh then there would have been no restitution. He would have been like one of the other mad kings in the promised land. And there were many of them. Verse 6, And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Hmm. Well, I, I think David did pity Uriah, but he pitied, pitied Bathsheba more and Uriah lost. And sin has this strange power to blind us, you, 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 you just, it's like it breaks your compass and you can't find your, the direction you need to go in. It's this power that goes with it. However, it does not take away our sense of right and wrong. It confuses us, but we're still capable of judging others, aren't we? As David is doing. He's judging someone else. But his conscience is about to be awakened and... Sin will be odious even in his eyes. His sin will be his. And he will forget all about the parable of Nathan. And he will now have his own problems. Where was David's sense of justice for Uriah, we could say? Well, he made a lot of mistakes. And so you can just line them up all you want. And it won't bring Uriah back. It will not undo the problem. But what can we learn from these things? Uh, I mentioned this fourfold restitution for stealing the sheep, it is interesting that the subsequent amount of deaths related to the judgment that came to David is for also. There would be Amnon, his son. We'll get to him, I think, uh, next chapter. Absalom in chapter 16. There would be Adonijah in Second Kings. And then there would be the child that was born to David and Bathsheba, the first child. So that's four deaths, four sons, the fourfold payment. Uh, most of the time I would be quick to say that is the spirit lining it up. And then this is one of the cases where I'm, I'm not so sure. Uh, if, I, if I put on my legalistic hat, it's easy. It's judgment. There are 5,000 unpardonable sins. That's the legalists. You just make them up as they go. 
But the heart of grace is, is looking for solutions without violating truth and love and law. And it's not easy, and not easy when you go to a doctor and you ask him to reconstruct something or to, you know, fix something that's been mangled. We expect it there, and we should expect it in the faith. Verse 7, Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. And thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. All this to expose his guilt, because again, we're defensive of our sins. Verse 7 again, then Nathan said, you are the man. There had to be a pause there. It had to be a firmness and a profound amount of love backing. David and Nathan were close. As we read the story of the two together, you get, you know, even Gad, the prophet Gad had David's ear. But it seems Nathan was the closest. And again, here is David, a godly man who committed a series of evil acts. And I believe when Nathan said this, it was with great tenderness and yearning. You are the man. The point was made. He did not have to say anything else to get David to repent and confess. He would. He was going to distill the judgment to come. David, as I mentioned, he did not, does not defend himself. He, he doesn't look to cover it up anymore. He took this step, these steps, these series of evil steps in increments. It did not happen instantly. And so it's a poetic and classic moment. You are the man, but still, you are the man that committed violence, created a tragedy, and it is a far, far-reaching uh, event, this occasion for poetic phrase, you are the man, is not one anybody wants to be the recipient of. I, the question I ask myself is, could God have sent you on Nathan's mission? Could he have sent me on such a mission as this? Am I too self-righteous? Am I too narrow-minded to the point of Phariseeism? that God can't use me in restoration, or maybe I'm too casual about sin, reckless with grace, supposing that grace can be available to any impenitent soul, looking for a way to get G Judas out of hell, that kind of universal junk doctrine, the universal fatherhood of God, that he's everybody's father. He is not everybody's father. He makes a clear distinction that there are those who have Satan as their father. He is the creator of all, but he is not everybody's father. There are a lot of people that look, bear no resemblance to our father who is in heaven. And I'm speaking about, of course, one's spirit and <clears throat> behaviors and views. So this is a, a poignant question. Could God have sent me on Nathan's mission? Of all the prophets that were available to send in Israel, Nathan was the man because of his high character. So God did not send one of them. He sends him. Galatians 6.1, now is the time to read that verse. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. 
Notice he doesn't itemize the temptations. Because we, again, look at other people's sins as uglier than our own. And we create unpardonable sins when God has said there's only one. This, again, it's to, to not wink at sin as though it's okay, but to remember you have a soul in your presence and that there's more to that soul than the sin that they've fallen into. That there's a real Satan and he hates our guts. And if you don't believe that, you're going to be mean-spirited with Christianity. A lot of Christians know mercy, but few, it seems to me, know grace. You can just hear the snide remarks they make when people try to be kind to someone who's struggling. Thus says Yahweh God of Israel. So without much of a pause, if any at all, he makes the, the indictment, the conviction, and now comes the sentence. And he, he goes right into the sentencing of David with rebuke built in. And here's the first part. I anointed you. The Lord's first comment is a heavy punch to the heart. I anointed you. I separated you from everybody else. I selected you for this. This was between you and me. And this is what you've done. Man, could you imagine? You can hear David's heart break. You can hear Nathan's heart break. We can see the shame blanket David's face. First it was shock. You're the man. And now it's shame. I anointed you. He goes back to that great day in Bethlehem when David, there amongst his brothers, who in stature were more noble than he, his father Jesse was there, that great man of God Samuel was there. And there was David, selected by God. I anointed you. Men pour oil. On, men pour oil, but God pours anointing. What would I tell a young pastor entering into a ministry of a church, taking a church on as a pastor? I would say, there are people in your church that are smarter than you and better than you, but you are anointed. They have anointings too, but you have that anointing. That levels the playing field. In fact, it gives you the advantage because you wield the word of God with anointing. And so, guilt is in his heart. David, and it's being scrubbed out. And God is not finished. He's just beginning. Verse 8. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you much more. Oh, man. I'd be boohooing all over the place. You know, the, 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 the heaving chest and I dare say even the never mind. It would be messy, a lot of fluid. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives. The phraseology means that God had given to David as king everything Saul has. But we have no record that there was any evidence of Saul's wives becoming David's. In fact, one of Saul's wives was uh, Michelle's mother, and that would be against the law. And we have, This is not at all what is meant here. He's saying... When you became king, you got it all. And whatever Saul had as king, you have now as king. And all David's life, God is saying to him, I have been Jehovah Jireh to you. I have been God your provider. 
That's what Abraham said. God will provide. And he did. His, his own ram. Now he is El Nassau. God our forgiver. Psalm 99 verse 8. The God who forgives. El Nassau in the Hebrew. Provider and forgiver. And he continues. He says if it had been too little. I would have given you much more. Another heavy blow to the heart. How does David survive this? I would have died from just being loved and crushed at the same time. But David is down here, and I'm not going to kick him. When I was looking at these, my notes from the last times that I've gone through this section of Scripture, I said to myself, man, I was a little hard on David. I don't have to be hard on David. God is the one that did what he had to do. It's for me to find out what can I squeeze from this that, that is a blessing. And for all, anyone who would listen, including myself, verse 9. Well, I just want to read that one more time. If it had been too little, I would have given you much more. What do you say to that? All that I have needed, you have provided. Great is your faithfulness. Why have you despised, verse 9, the commandment of Yahweh? To do evil in his sight. You've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife. And have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. He has to say it out loud. He has, this is the king's court. This is official. There are other people in the room. It's not a private meeting. At this point, a Saulish type man would be offering wretched justification. David does not. What the armies of the enemies of God's people, what the armies of the idolaters could never do on the battlefield, David himself accomplishes in one episode of wrongdoing. He brought his own defeat. I'm impressed how he recovers from this. Because when he recovers, it's like it never happened as it should be. I mean, it did happen. But God deals with it, and David moves forward. And I think when David is planning the temple, he is saying to God, you know, I just want to make this right. I think Paul, the apostle, he lived the way he lived much because he couldn't forget Stephen. He was a part of that man's death. And it just is the natural way we think is that I'm going to make good on this. It's not an act of works. It's just sort of this thing that's driving us because it's right. It's a spirit of action. And David will get it, just not, this, not yet. And you'll see it come out after he survives many of the judgments that are coming his way. You've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife. Oh, David, my hero. You're still my hero. Just not that. Murder and adultery, covetousness, stealing, false witness, hypocrisy. When he says, and have killed with the sword of the people of Ammon, he's saying, you use others to do your dirty work. It's another punch to the heart of David. You didn't do it yourself. David would not have killed Uriah himself. But he did use others. His sword was clean uh, physically. Verse in other words, no evidence. Verse 10, 
Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Internal strife, that's the judgment. You're going to have some serious family problems. All the ingredients were already there. God did not have to create them. The harem, they spawned the ingredients for this judgment. The outcome of David's sin is would be it would be the absence of respect for life in his own home, which comes with people who begin to judge others as being less than worth living. When you don't look at a human being as a human being created in God's image, sinner or not, you're starting to enter into waters that will lead you to justify treating that human being as though they were an animal. This would account for how people have enslaved other people for centuries. The innocent child will die. That is, of course, the first judgment that will come, but that's not directly connected with this. It's not because of the sword in the home. That comes with Ammon, deflowering Tamar, his stepsister, then Absalom killing, having Amnon murdered because of that, Absalom's rebellion against David, and then Absalom is killed by yet another family member indirectly, uh, Joab. And then there's Adonijah's attempted coup, which Bathsheba will be used to put down, her and Nathan and others too, but mainly those two, And Solomon will execute Adonijah. And so when he says, the sword shall never depart from your house, it was fulfilled. God does not have to cause these things. All he has to do is withdraw the blessings. The the times when God would interfere, all he has to do is pull those interferences out. I'm not going to interfere. I'm going to let them be who they are. That's how a curse can take place. When I think about how much unanswered prayer I get from God, I balance that with how many things he's blessed me with that I can't see, that are impossible to see. Uh, You know, what fallen tree didn't fall on my head because he held it back or something, you know, like that. We just trust God. Verse 11, thus says Yahweh, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this sun. Uh, Of course, the the star, the sun in the sky. Uh, David's children, his sons, would use violence that God would allow and control. It would not be out of control. It would be under God's control. And those seeds and weeds are already there. This, um, of course, was fulfilled this malicious practice of polygamy would spawn this within the family. And I will take your wives from before you, your eyes, and give them to your neighbor. Your neighbor here, in this context, are witnesses. And this was fulfilled, will be in our sessions in chapter 16, but it was fulfilled. And it was not a fulfilling that was, uh, you know, self-fulfilled prophecy. Well, God said this was going to happen, so let's leave the women back, some of the women back, and Absalom can fulfill it. That wasn't the case. It was just, there was no way to avoid it. David was leaving in such haste, he could not take everyone out with him. It didn't work out that way. And God just saw it happening and said, this is what's going to be the deal with you, David. 
Verse 12, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the Son. A public judgment. God is not ashamed of his judgment. And those who are guilty, like Absalom, it was their choice uh, to be guilty. It's not like there was some curse put upon them where they could not do anything else but sin. Uh, just God just knows what to do with what he has. And uh, again, how many sins, how many, how many sad things we've been shielded from that we could never know. I think about some of the bullets I've dodged in life, and I'm just humbled by them, scared a little bit. Like, wow, how did that happen? I, I, I should have been dead on that one. Verse 13, so David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan said to David, Yahweh also has put away your sin. You shall not die, just like that. David immediately sides against his, his sin and himself, and he sides with God. He, he instantly as as with us, we would hope to side with God. We would hope that uh, we would not pretend that things are other than they are. It is an unconditional surrender, incidentally. There's no yeah buts. There's no attempt to explain it away. We had a uh, immoral president. Not, not, well, not because of one act or two, because he just is a blasphemer. When he was put under oath by Congress, he lied, he obstructed justice, he evaded the truth. He wanted to argue the definition of if. I mean, it's like, you know, it's crazy that he got away with it. And the prosecutor became the villain because of the wickedness in the land. Reminds you of uh, Naboth's vineyard, the evil people getting away with evil. Nathan said to David, Yahweh has put away your sin. And again, instantly, just like that, Nathan was ready for this. Nathan was probably so relieved. I don't think his countenance changed much. I, I wouldn't think, I think he would maintain his composure in his office as a prophet. But I'm sure he was like, when he got home, like, thank you, Lord. I did not want to see my friend David completely destroyed. Sin does not make us worthless to God, not when we repent. Um, <clears throat> impenitent sin ultimately does. Otherwise, you could not have such verses as the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It would be, uh, we would call it psychotic, schizophrenic to say that God is loving those who are in hell. I mean, there comes a time where it stops. There's a line in the sand. It's hard for some of us to, to, to think because God is love, but he's, uh, he's going to ex execute judgment, and there's no way around that. The wrath of God. In Revelation, he talks about the blood coming up to the bridle of the horses. This is a fair, fierce deal. And for you or me to say, well, I think that's a bit harsh, it's foolhearted. We have to accept these facts, and that's why we preach. But when it comes to Forgiveness, we have a, a host of uh, the alumni. Adam and Eve were forgiven. Aaron um, was forgiven for his sin. Uh, the, the woman in John chapter 8, when she was caught in the act of adultery. The prodigal son. Peter, when he denies the Lord. 
ad astra. It just goes on and on. God is ready to forgive, eager to forgive. But uh, as Paul said, uh, there is that terror of the Lord. The great white throne judgment is not a loving event. Although there's mercy connected with it, or else there would be no level of judgment meted out. It would just be a blanket judgment, and it is not. It is There are levels of judgment. So my point is, sin does not make us worthless to God. Uh, if that were the case, he would not have felt that it was worth dying for us on the cross. And this is the message we... we Sometimes we, you know, it's so hard to reach unbelievers. What do you hit them with? The love of God, the judgment of God. What's going to shake them? Some need the fear of God. Others need the love. How do you know? It depends on the leading of the Spirit. The, the greatest possession that we can have in this life is the friendship of God. And we spend much energy trying to communicate that. It is the outcome of the friendship of God that we find grace and apart from good deeds, grace does not come from good deeds. It comes from that friendship. And we will see this when we, in the second half of this chapter, when we, Solomon is born. We see the grace poured out on Solomon that he did not earn, uh, even before he was born. Uh, again, grace is not a reward for following the law. law. It is the outcome of friendship with God. <clears throat> And there's no way to know the grace of God without the Holy Spirit. Psalm 103, verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. David is not going to pay the full price for this sin. In the New Testament, we read, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on a tree, that we having died to sins, might live for righteousness, whose stripes you were, by whose stripes you were healed. First Peter chapter 2. And he says here, you shall not die, because the sentence of the law for adultery and murder was death. And now it's official. Uh, David happened to have an advocate in heaven. We appreciate that, do we not? If anyone sins, John writes, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And again, the legalists would object. Um, how hard do you hit the legalists? We've got to be merciful to them. How will the legalists know mercy if you just keep judging them? You get it? All right. So, anyway... Uh, where I mentioned murderers were not allowed to ransom themselves. Deuteronomy 22, if a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. And the man that lay with the woman and the woman, you shall put away the evil from Israel. And then Numbers 35, verse 31, Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but, you shall put, put, uh, but he shall be put to death. And so there you have... Uh, what David should have gotten. But God overruled his law because that is his, that is his prerogative as God. And he sends his prophet Nathan to implement this uh, grace. And uh, it is confirmed by subsequent history that this was God indeed because of everything plays out. And so we have Psalm 32 again. Looking back, David later writing about this. I acknowledged my sin to you. And my iniquity I have not hidden. 
He did for a while. When he was confronted, he did not. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And again, the Selah. Now, verse 14. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of Yahweh to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Well, as I was reading just now, this 14th verse, I felt God just say to me, remind his people that what we walk away with tonight from this section of the Bible is God's great love and mercy and willingness to restore. That is the message. You know, it's been said if you go to a a, a church meeting and uh, the Holy Spirit's moving in the hearts of people and... uh, you leave talking about the Holy Spirit, you've missed the Lord Jesus. We go and we talk about Jesus because the Holy Spirit points to Jesus and not to himself. And uh, that is his role and we accept that. Uh, That does not mean we are not grateful and and very cognizant of the Spirit of God and his fullness. But uh, that is also the case here. To leave a session like this and walk away thinking about how messed up David was is to miss the point. It's part of the point. It gets us to the point. It's the vehicle. But our eyes are on God, not David. What did God do with this scrambled egg? Well, he unscrambles it. But we also know that God meted out judgment and is quite intense. And we're going to spend a lot of the rest of this second Samuel living out this curse. It's judgment. So he says, however, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of Yahweh to blaspheme. Well, the God print, the God haters, they don't need an occasion, but they look for them. And they would run to post this story on every hideous page they could post it. They still do it. It's not so bad when one of their entertainers does something evil or an athlete. They may mention it, but how much do they hide? But you let a child of God mess up. Oh, brother, man, it's like they can't wait to tell the story. And why? Why do they do that? Why is that necessary? I have said this quite a few times. I don't know if the museum is still there in Washington, D.C. Somebody ought to just bulldoze that building. It's all of the, the news stories that they, they just love themselves, and uh, they're the cause of half the stories. Uh, I think of 9-11. They're the ones that suppressed what we were dealing with with Islam, and they would have none of it. And yet, look what happened. And you, you go to that first room in that museum. It's the Pulitzer Prize room, and all of the people who won Pulitzer Prizes for their photography are capturing somebody else's grief and profiting off of it. I don't know if that has anything to do with what I'm saying, but I just felt like uh, here's another. I know I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again because I bear a grudge against them. Uh, It's a righteous grudge. Uh, They are evil. And uh, if you think the news media is your friend, um, the, the pastors are here for prayer, to lay hands on you, and to take that demon out. Uh, Anyway, any excuse to resent God for being God... They will exhaust, and Nathan says, you've handed them a soft pitch. Let's not make it easy for them. 
He says, the child who is born to you surely shall die. This will notify the wicked that God, a holy God, does not take sin casually. And we've discussed the condition of the child. They're going to heaven. And uh, we'll talk more about that as we move through the books, the Old Testament books. But David is not rewarded for his crime. And had the child lived, this is just a thought, he would have been looked upon as that illegitimate child. And, you know, we have a, a word, a single word that, that uh, defines that. And uh, that's just a side thought. But the death of the child served to protect the nature of God. It, is, it was critical at this point in the kingdom. So we close with this verse from Proverbs. And Proverbs, you know, you, you, you read the Proverbs and you say, where was Solomon when he wrote these things? Was he drunk? Because they are just, he violates all of them. And you say, how could such a man make write such things and commit such crimes? And he justified them. He felt <clears throat> that the end justifies the mean. He got tripped up. He became the smart, stupid guy. It's very, we have him all over the planet, do we not? How many people in MIT are going to heaven? I mean, it's just you can, have, you can be extremely smart and a spiritual moron. And, uh, but I think Solomon recovered. Anyway, I believe that. Not, I'm not guessing. I'm sure of that. And we'll get to that next session. God's views on Solomon, as messed up as he was. Proverbs 4. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. And the Bible says, and don't forget the issues of sin. God is great. Let's pray. Our Father, it certainly would have been nice to talk about the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. But you gave us a class on dealing with sin and each other in your presence and consequence. <clears throat> Imagine if we didn't have these th lessons, how ranked the church would be. We've looked at church history. We've seen the false and the apostate churches. And we see what happens when people use your name and aren't interested in your word. May, uh, may we be able to sort these things out in such a way that we bring honor to you comfort and grace to each other. May you get us all home safely tonight. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.